This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for Thursday, June 27th, the Please Send Soap and Toothpaste edition. I'm Emily Bazelon. I'm here in Aspen, Colorado, in an amazingly beautiful recording studio. I don't know how we wound up here, but it is very lovely. And I'm here, of course, with John Dickerson of 60 Minutes. Hello, Emily. It is really, it's just we're surrounded like by blonde wood and beauty um, and all these amazing instruments, which crave someone with talent to play them. Right. It's a good thing you're here. I, I wish I I wish I answered to that description. <laughs> and we're also happily joined by David French of the National Review. I should have asked you if that was the proper way to introduce you. Yeah, absolutely. Is that good? Okay. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, thank you. Excellent. We're really glad you're here. We're David and I are looking forward to totally geeking out <laughs> on Supreme Court decisions. But first, um, I'm going to introduce all of our topics. On this week's show, we're going to talk about Donald Trump's pension in the last week for shifting course abruptly. This happened, of course, with regards to Iran, the airstrike that Trump pulled back at the last minute, and also on the domestic front with immigration, where a supposed plan to have mass deportations from the interior of the country didn't happen in the end, and Trump instead tried to use this threat to get the Democrats to start talking about changing asylum law in a way that he has been pushing for. So we're going to talk about this Trump approach of bark with very little bite and what the implications are of that. Our second topic is about the end of the Supreme Court term. Two giant cases are coming down basically as we're taping this morning. One is a decision about partisan gerrymandering. The second is about the Trump administration's effort to add a citizenship question to the census. We will go through both of them. And then finally, we're going to talk about the fight within conservatism about the sensibility and approach of our guest, David French, who became the sort of lightning rod for a really interesting conversation among conservatives about Trump and Trumpism and also about civility and uh, or the lack thereof, the need to end civility within the conservative movement. And at the end, of course, we'll have cocktail chatter. Okay, so, John, changing your mind at the last minute, making a big deal of changing your mind, actually making that sort of part of the drama, part of why we're watching, part of the addiction that we all have to the news and this president and his ability to get attention. In this case, this week, we saw this play out internationally in Iran and then domestically on the immigration front. So like, how do we compare this to past presidencies? Was Trump doing something that we've seen before? 
No, I think both are a result of a disordered presidency and a presidency that has none of the traditional systems for uh, sorting information from all the relevant partners and putting decisions before the president that he can make. Um, and we can talk about the different ways in which both are disordered. In the immigration, on the immigration front, I think you see a variety of um, problems with his approach, with um, with his blunt force insistence on uh, certain policies at the border uh, that have, in the end, created certain effects. Part of it is the reality of the fact that we have a, an extraordinary number of people at the border. So this is that's real. But the way in which he's answered it and the way in which he's approached it, which we can talk about, is quite different than and than previous presidents. On um, and 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 you could, I think, make the case that the disordered approach of the president ends up landing on the heads of the people, uh, particularly the children who. Um, have had to suffer through these conditions. On Iran, I I think yes, it's disordered. There are there's a model for how you're supposed to uh, tee up national security decisions. The Scowcroft model. It's very patient. The national security advisor doesn't really play a role other than a coordinating role among the different agencies, and it doesn't influence the decision because if the national security uh, advisor does that, it creates infighting that then. Um, sways the decision. Okay, so that model's not being followed. John Bolton is a very active participant in the Iran argument. Some people argue, including Brett McGurk, who used to be the president's envoy to Afghanistan and Iraq, yeah, argues amazing. that basically that Bolton has put the president in a box. So that's another example of disordered um, decision-making, creating... Uh, these decisions are always hard, but it's particularly hard when you have a disordered decision-making process. Um what is also a problem is you have the president's decision, whatever it actually may have been, being undermined by leaks from the Pentagon about what it was and whether he was told about casualties and not. And that's not very good either in a decision that's about life and death or could be about life and death. So, um, no, this isn't like anything we've ever seen. I think on I think it's not a bad thing for the president to be seen as really unpredictable in Iran. Um, Iran is doing a lot of things that both Republican and Democratic administrations, particularly with the creation of missiles, missile proliferation, action in the region that American presidents and American administrations want to stop and want to um, push back against. And so an unpredictable president's probably not terrible in that context, but the unpredictability has to have some theme behind it. And that's that's the, the concern with this president. David, Trump's actions vis-a-vis -vis Iran are obviously in the context of his decision a year and a little bit ago to blow up the um, Iran deal that President Obama had struck that was supposed to contain Iran. We're now seeing the kind of medium to long-term consequences of that play out and Iran becoming more aggressive as its economy gets increasingly squeezed by U.S. sanctions. So what does that when you think about that backdrop and then you think about Trump's unpredictability and what comes next, like how does that all fit together for you? Yeah, I'm I'm going to start to say that I think he's predictable in, a, in a, some key ways. Uh, I think he's predictable in that he blusters and that he says things that, let's put it this way, you know, in 2017, when he's talking about raining down fire and fury on Little Rocket Man, nobody had seen the pattern yet. And so there was a lot of understandable a real alarm. And I, I remember writing the long piece back then that said, hey, guys, we need to really think through what a second Korean war would look like. And it would be horrific on a level that you can't really comprehend. And then the next thing you know, he's sitting down with him virtually without preconditions, 
does it twice, declares, you know, the nuclear threat from Korea to be over, which was completely false. And a bromance unfolds. Oh, and the bromance continues, uh, even though the Koreans continue to do what they do. And so you began to see this pattern of bluster followed by blinking. It's almost like the end, complete inverse of the Teddy Roosevelt speak softly and carry a big stick. It's tweet very loudly and, and wield no stick at all. And the interesting thing about this, I saw a lot of Trump defenders say when he canceled the strike at the last minute, well, the mullahs of Iran really dodged a bullet and he sent a message that they dodged a bullet. No, they they didn't. They dodged a, a pinprick strike. I mean, they forecast it was going to target three three targets, high-end casualty estimates of 150. This is a regime that does not care about the loss of 150 soldiers. It does not at all. I mean, it in his war with Iraq, they sent human wave attacks across minefields. I mean, that's how little regard they have for human life to sustain the Islamic revolution. And there is a strategy that has the potential to work of calm, sustained economic pressure where you don't allow Iran to goad you into a wider conflict. There is no economic pain that America feels from inflicting sanctions on Iran, none. And so if Iran wants to readjust the equation, it has to do something to inflict pain back on the United States. And that could be either you know, leading its Shiite militias to attack in Iran and inflict American casualties, create some chaos in the Gulf that could cause uncertainty in world markets and maybe nick economies a little bit, or just to create a sense of unease and uncertainty in the American people, because the Iranians have their eyes on 2020. And I think part of their strategy is we will outlast this guy. If we outlast him and there's enough chaos to create unease where a Democratic president can come in and say, I'm going to reimpose order and stability. And perhaps go back to this And go back to the deal then they'll have ridden the wave. And so I think as of right now, it's just a completely open question as to who's going to ultimately prevail. But if at the end of the day, Trump leaves office with Iran busting through its uranium enrichment limits, with it not stopping its support for Hezbollah, and with it still sustaining its influence in Syria and Iraq, then it will have been a failure. His his policy will have been a empirically would have been a failure. And just one more thing to add to that is also the alienation of our European allies and their sense that we can't be relied on and the more general global sense that the United States is willing to break deals that it says that it has made. And then what does that mean for future? Yeah, I was not a fan of the Iran deal, but there are consequences to breaking an agreement. And you had better have a very good plan in place to mitigate those consequences and to for your policy to prevail before you're going to take that step. And, you know, one of the things that, that is also predictable about this president is that while some of his subordinates may have plans, the president does not have plans. Right. And, and when the buck stops with him, that's a problem. And just to, as David mentioned, uh, if they want to blow through the agreement on uh, restarting their nuclear program, they've now said they will yeah. this week. So they are planning to do that. And then to David's final point, this, the disconnect between the plans of the president and the plans of his advisors, back to this idea of a disordered presidency. I mean, the cost here, um, we saw when the president kind of called an audible on Syria, he lost his secretary of defense and he lost Brett McGurk, who I, I uh, quoted earlier. So uh, there's the 
success or failure of the underlying policy, but then there's the collateral damage from the disordered implementation or lack of implementation of that policy. Um, And we should also note that, by the way, there's not an actual Secretary of Defense at the moment, um, which is a part of a larger problem, again, of a disordered presidency in which your personnel decisions have been just a thoroughgoing disaster across the entire administration. Uh, But that a lot of these problems require, and Iran is a perfect one, but cyber warfare, which Iran is a part of, require long, patient, concerted effort from people, in the best of cases, across administrations. And to keep the eye on the ball, to see in which the ways the pressures can be changed, you know, some people believe that with Iran, economic pressures won't be enough. So you need to start doing some coercive military, whether it's cyber or other things to put pressure on on them to, to rein in their missile program. You need people who have been around, who who have watched this, who have worked it, who have been, talked to the Europeans, who are of kind of a couple of different minds about how to deal with Iran's missile program, separate and apart from their nuclear program. And the just the personnel just ain't there. Um, so anyway. Well, and not only that, he has contempt for those people. Precisely. Before we close off this topic, I just want to shift to immigration for a moment. So we're having this, um, having to grapple with a real humanitarian emergency at the border. And there have been these, to me, horrifying stories out of Clint, Texas, about a border facility that seems utterly unequipped to take care of children, where we just seem to be holding kids in incredibly inhumane conditions that are just heartbreaking. And then we have this photograph of a father and daughter drowning in the Rio Grande that I think also is um, at least making me really have a moment of conscience about what is happening at the border. In the context of Trump's um, desire for closing down the border, for having Mexico try to stem the wave um, for, you know, his wall, which remains unbuilt, but obviously remains a goal. David, how do you take in these images and stories? Like, how important do they feel to you in the context of thinking about the American immigration situation? You know, I, you know, I think there are two non-delegable duties that the government has here. One is, especially when you have un- unaccompanied kids coming into the United States, to just sort of say, here you go, go off into the, you know, the great American frontier is dangerous. We need to have a place where these unaccompanied kids in particular can be held safely. We also have to have held in good conditions. We need to know who is coming in. We need to know whether they have valid asylum claims. We need to know all of these things. And so that means at least for a time, there is going to be a detention process, but it has to be humane. It has to be safe. It has to be sanitary. A great nation like ours has zero excuse. And now I get that there has been a huge influx and a huge increase in people and that in can, families right in not families. in people well, but in, the, in the families. border the border seizures uh, border arrests are way up from years past um in just in the last several months so there is an overwhelming number of families there's more people of late and i get that and that can strain a system but some of the stories that you hear about punitive actions taken against people because they're acting out or or you know not following directions to the satisfaction of of these you know border agencies and immigration officials all of that just is that should shock the conscience of all of us 
And one other thing that I would say about the Trump approach, again, this this was, you know, his signature issue was he was going to take care of immigration across the southern border. I mean, this is what he's been, he ran on from the moment he came down that escalator. And what an unbelievable, again, abject empirical failure that has been. The border situation is worse than when he took office, and that's a bottom line reality. And and presidents are... One of the reasons the job ain't so easy is um, they are faced with things that are not of their making and that are really thorny and complex and hard to deal with. I mean, the greatness of a president is then determined by when they have this thing that is completely uh, sideways, they didn't cause it, and they rise to the moment either in a policy terms, they come up with a solution, or they rise to the moment politically, which is to say that while chaos is happening, they find a way to frame it, they find a way to apply some set of American values to it. Even if you can't solve the problem uh, or any of those things, you at least, because this has created a new kind of emotional pull to this story. You want some heart, but I don't think, I mean, it would be so implausible, Oh, uh, totally implausible, I think. Hey, Slate Plus members. Our Slate Plus topic this week will be one more goodie from the Supreme Court, the court's decision to allow a 40-foot cross in Maryland to continue to stand. This is a cross that was erected in 1918 as a World War I monument, and it is a decision that I think in an interesting way changes the Supreme Court's thinking or jurisprudence about the um, Establishment Clause and the Constitution about when states can and can't, well, about how we deal with the establishment of religion. Um, I also wanted to give a plug to our upcoming live show in Toronto, our first show outside of the United States. We are all really excited about it. And we have a special guest to announce. Jesse Brown will be joining us. He is the publisher and podcast host of Canada Land. So come out for our show in Toronto on July 10th. This episode of The Gabfest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Let's move on to our second topic, which has changed as we were taping. We are now going to talk about two huge cases that came down today. Uh, The first involves partisan gerrymandering and the court really shutting the door to lower courts and judges being able to review claims of extreme partisan gerrymandering. And the second is a really surprising, at least to me, decision in the case about whether the census can include a question about citizenship. I had expected the conservatives on the court to 
allow the Trump administration to proceed with adding this question, but that is not happening. In a majority opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts, the court has sent back the citizenship question to the lower courts, basically asked the government to come up with a, to try to come up with a better, um, actually plausible rationale for why it decided to add the question. So let's start with this partisan gerrymandering decision. This is a long line of cases. The court has been dancing around this question for decades. And the question at hand is, if you have a claim that In the redistricting process, the legislature has deliberately tried to make it really hard for the party out of power to ever get back into power. What do you do? Can courts try to review this? Is there a way in which uh, this could be a claim that is justiciable. That's that fancy legal word for like, can courts do this? Do they have the expertise? Is this a proper role for them to play? Justice Anthony Kennedy kind of famously kept the door just a teeny bit open to this notion of judicial review of partisan gerrymandering claims. And by doing so, he allowed quite a lot of social science to develop in which uh, political scientists and um, and like folks who run huge amounts of data through computer programs We're coming up with standards for trying to look at how you can and can't create maps that are fairer and more proportional, but allow for some political considerations. And they said that they had come up with like what they thought were a really plausible set of standards. The court last year before Kennedy retired declined to go with this set of standards they developed, but again, didn't totally shut the door. So today the door just shut in a 5-4 decision, classic conservative versus liberals, and another opinion by Chief Justice John Roberts. Roberts is arguing that this is just beyond the competency of courts. Courts can't do this. They're not good at it. And in a dissent by Elena Kagan, a really strong dissent, she says basically that's not true. Yes, we can do this. And and accuses the majority for the first time ever in the court's history of pulling back from engaging in an important set of questions because the courts are just saying, like, this is too much for us. So, David, what do you make of this decision? I, what I make of it is it is important, but in the real world, less important than lots of folks make seem to believe. And why do you think that? So he closed the door on what's called the partisan gerrymander, which is gerrymandering based on political affiliation. Uh, All I care about is the D's and the R's by the name. I'm trying to maximize if I'm, you know, Republican in power, I'm trying to maximize the number of my seats. And all I'm thinking about are the D's and the R's. Now, what it also said, though, is that a racial gerrymander is still constitutionally suspect. Well, what does that mean in practice? Particularly in the South, for example, there is going to be an extremely strong overlap in the D and the R based on race. Extremely strong overlap. Because African-Americans vote so reliably Democratic. Right. And the white voters in the South vote very reliably Republican. You know, that means that in the gerrymandering cases where there are sharp racial divides in this country, which go to the heart of the most divisive issue in all of American history, you're still going to have a lot of searching judicial inquiry there because they're going to be inquiring and they're going to be looking hard to see, is this a partisan gerrymander or is this a racial gerrymander? And whether partisan is a proxy for race. Whether partisan is, yeah, it's a pretext. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, So you'll still have that searching inquiry. 
where you'll have less inquiry is say, let's say you have states in the upper Midwest that are Michigan, 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 Wisconsin, the union of Michigan and Wisconsin, yes, precisely. Huh. That are created oh, a whole new place. Exactly. That are overwhelmingly or mostly white, but still pretty. Um, you know, very closely divided on a partisan basis. So doesn't this decision matter for those states? It matters for those states. It definitely does. But there are two other avenues for dealing with gerrymandering that are just come to the top of your mind. One is the citizens of the state can vote to change the law to, you know, independent commissions, for example, have been created in some states. And then state Supreme Courts. This is a federal Supreme Court. This is a federal constitutional issue. State constitutions are interpreted differently by state courts. And so uh, this is there. there is, like many, many issues in American life, there's more than one way to get at this issue. Uh, and so I think um, just my super fast perusal of Twitter was seeing an awful lot of people saying, well, this just is carte blanche for gerrymandering now and forever. I don't think so, not in the, not in the way it will work out in the real world. Yeah, I mean, a few follow-ups to that. So one is that if you are someone who worries about partisan gerrymandering, I'm going to put myself in that category. You're not losing a tool that used to exist. The courts have never done this. This was about whether they would start. Now, it is true that some lower courts had just started to do this. And I think that's one of the things that Justice Kagan finds so frustrating is is watching uh, this door being closed just as lower court judges are feeling like they have these statistical tools to take it on. And, you know, just to go one more step down that path, if the people who draw the maps have the um, analytic tools to create these very sophisticated gerrymanderings, that means that judges also have the tools to analyze them. It's a parallel universe here. So I don't buy for a second this notion that this is like beyond the reach of the courts. And when you look at the racial gerrymandering cases and the quite complex statistical analyses that go into those cases, it's pretty similar. And just to remind people why gerrymandering is a problem for the four people out there who who may not know why, but the idea is that we've set up a structural system that disincentivizes any kind of bipartisanship. If you are in a district or now, a st- well, states don't, we don't have to worry about gerrymandering, but in a district that is so protected by the way it's drawn, there is no incentive for you to do anything outside of your own most partisan interests of your party. And that makes making laws much more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And you see... Or sustainable laws. Well, and also in these states like Wisconsin and North Carolina and and Maryland, you've seen political majorities entrench themselves structurally so that, you know, you can... The Democrats could win considerably more than 50% of the vote in Wisconsin and still be way under the majority in the legislature. And that just starts to feel like a dysfunctional democracy. But I think, David, to your point, you're right about these alternate remedies. And it's important that, for example, the Pennsylvania Supreme Court's decision finding under the Pennsylvania Constitution that that state's gerrymander was unconstitutional, that still stands. And that avenue could be available to other state Supreme Courts. That's how federalism works. It's a virtue of federalism. And, you know, one other thing we need to talk, think about in the context of gerrymandering, there's there's kind of a natural gerrymander that's happening in this country right now. The big mm-hmm. sort, you the mean? The big sort. Like is clustering with like. Um, Will Wilkinson at the Niskanen Center had a report yesterday that was really, really very interesting. And it was showing how people are sorting by ideology and disposition mm-hmm. that, 
You what know, does the, that mean? What does the disposition part disposition mean? personality traits really that there is a, a there are a personality profiles of people who live in urban centers and there are personality profiles of people who live in rural more rural and what parts are of the they? Well, I, I don't have the All report right. in front of <laughs> me, but it is essentially you know people who are more comfortable with diversity, um, who are seeking maybe even seeking out diversity, are m- living in in larger cities. Um, as that happens, it's you're beginning to drain diversity often from the more rural parts of the country, which are also falling behind economically. It's creating a defensive mindset, almost a, a bit of a bunker mentality that is then exacerbating the existence of differences. And it creates a it's a self-reinforcing loop as the as people begin to increasingly cluster with people of like mind. To the point where, you know, often in many of these communities, I used to live um, in a much more rural part of Tennessee. I did not know a single person in my social circle who voted for Hillary Clinton. Did not know one. And I would bet you have a different social circle. And so when when you begin to cluster like that, it has profound impacts on just that very issue. Uh, you have lots more safe seats, lots more safe red, lots more safe blue. Lots less incentive and to cost. Arguably, though, all of the, that makes it even more important to have tools to address extreme partisan gerrymandering, right? Because we are in this, this moment of increased misunderstanding and alienation from people who are different from us. And just to David's point, you're also having more, a, a greater number of things are signifiers of a person's identity. So it's right. it's now it's the car you drive, you know, the, there's a, a book that addresses a lot of this called Prius versus Pickup, but it's it's all the little things you do that send people signals about whether they want to live near you or not live near you. So it feels like the sorting is going to happen even faster yes. based on, the, you know, the cues I'm getting about the music you listen to, the place you shop, whether you hunt, all that stuff. Right, but that makes it easier yeah. to disenfranchise people, which is effectively what is extreme partisan gerrymandering does, right? Because if you just think of all these other people as like contemptible and not like you at all. It's easier to change the actual structural rules of the democracy so they can never get back into power. Will you guys explain to me why the court, it isn't in the court's bailiwick to address the big question here is whether because states, because parties in these states have these tools to create boundaries that basically lock them in power, why that basically big question isn't in the court's uh, interest, which is that some that somebody might be using tools to basically make it impossible for a minority, or as you said, it may be even, even a, minor, a majority, to uh, improve the political situation through the ballot box, because no matter, because of the way things are drawn. I mean, I think this court is unwilling to create that avenue because they don't want courts to play that role. And, you know, if you want to be cynical about it, the gerrymanders are benefiting Republicans more than Democrats, given the geography of various states right now. And you have a Republican five to four majority on the Supreme Court. And it's the Democratic appointees who are worried about exactly what you were just saying. My biggest fear about this area has to do with these nonpartisan independent commissions some states have set up. I think they're really important and actually a better tool for dealing with this whole problem than the courts, because when you have a commission like that, you're taking the act of drawing the maps away from this incredibly political partisan 
legislature, right? Of course, legislators want to draw maps that are going to benefit their party. So if you just take the whole job away from them, then that solves the problem. The courts don't have to come in after the fact. My concern is that the Supreme Court decision that upholds ballot initiatives as the route to creating these commissions was a very hard fought five to four in which Chief Justice Roberts wrote this impassioned dissent about how this was unconstitutional, that only legislators can create independent commissions. Those same legislators who don't have an incentive to do that. And that was when Justice Kennedy was on the court. He was the fifth vote along with the liberal justices. And so I really wonder if that precedent is in peril. And then that changes the whole equation you're talking about of like, oh, don't worry so much. We have these other routes. I would say based on Robert's jurisprudence, um, you know, he has these competing tendencies. So he has an originalist side, although Lots of smart people would not say that he's an originalist. Me. Uh, I don't know if a smart person, but I would say that. Yeah, he's a, <laughs> lots of I, – I, I would say he is – he is not – you would not describe him fairly as an originalist, but he has sometimes originalist tendencies. He also has strong, as a lot of people have talked about, institutionalist tendencies. I think he is less likely – than many people imagine to switch sides, I mean, to to cause an immediate reversal of precedent on issues of that magnitude. And so that is a, a reality that is disappointing to a lot of conservatives. They look at Roberts and they say, well, your job should be determined whether this, this law, this regulation is consistent with the original public meaning of the constitutional provisions at issue. And if a precedent was decided 10 years ago that says yes, but the real answer is no, you you have Who to cares? go with no. Who cares? Um, whereas I don't think Roberts has that analysis. So you still feel that way, even though there have been these skirmishes in the last year and a half over overturning precedents and increasing um, like urgent calls of alarm by Justice Kagan and Justice Breyer and other liberals about the court's willingness to review, to reconsider these these precedents. And, you know, the biggest one so far involves um, unions and the, the court's decision in Janus mm-hmm. last year in which, okay, you see them build a record toward, right? Like they don't all of a sudden reverse this super important old precedent. They kind of take a couple of incremental steps. They build their own set. They, they lay out the breadcrumbs so yeah. that they're not just like doing something out of whole cloth, but the end result is the same. It just takes a couple more years. Yeah, as a general rule, the, the court kind of forecasts what it's going to reverse. And so, you know, on this issue, I would say if it was going to be a truly Robertsian approach, you would start to see Roberts laying the breadcrumbs. It wouldn't just come like a bolt out of the clear blue. Yeah, I'm not sure how much better that makes me feel. It well, takes slightly longer. You get to the same result. You get a lot more podcasting. Uh, <laughs> material. Warning of the, imp- of the coming doom. It pays my salary yes. longer. But if you don't mind, let's talk about the census case, which I've been just like basically obsessed with all year. I am really surprised and heartened by this decision. Parts of the opinion are even unanimous. To quickly summarize, and it's a little bit complicated, and I'm hoping I'm not going to get it wrong, but I think what's happening here is the court is saying, okay, government, you have the power to put a citizenship question into the census. That doesn't violate what's called the enumeration clause, like the basic part of the Constitution that says, go count. However, you have to give a plausible reason for doing that under the Administrative Procedures Act, this 1940s law that says effectively, or at least as it's interpreted by the courts, it says that the government's rationale, that that the government can't be doing something arbitrary and capricious. And what happened here, because of 
utter bumbling by Secretary Wilbur Ross and his people was I would say a lie. The um, Commerce Department claimed that the only reason for adding the citizenship question was to provide data to enforce the Voting Rights Act because of a request from the Justice Department. In fact, in the course of this litigation, we learned from Ross's own emails and other administrative records that Ross was the one who went to the Justice Department. It's hard even to believe this Voting Rights Act justification to begin with because the Trump administration hasn't brought any Voting Rights Act cases and the government had never before said they needed this data to enforce the law. So what we're seeing here, I think, is like a willingness to look beneath the hood of a really to borrow John's word, disordered administrative process. And the reason I'm surprised by it is that this didn't happen in the travel ban case last year. And also at oral argument, it didn't seem like the conservative justices were troubled by what had happened. Yeah, I'm surprised by the outcome for that reason. The oral argument to me forecast that this the administration was going to win. Yeah. Uh, I would say chaos loses cases. You know, one of the things when I was litigating, and I would always tell my clients this, You can't change the past, but from the moment you file your case, all of your behavior and your posture should be aimed towards making it easier for the court to rule for you, Um, not harder. Don't make the court have to overlook things to rule for you. And here, from the get-go, the administration should have known this was going to be challenged. They should have known they have to dot their I's and cross their T's. And from the get-go, they essentially said, full speed ahead, rationalization later. (laughs) <laughs> and what what Congress has done here, and a lot of the Supreme Court justices are really rediscovering the uh, what I would call uh, trying to rediscover the forms of our constitutional structure. So what Congress did here is they had already delegated the counting responsibility and formulating the census questions to the executive branch. A the very, Commerce Department. Right. The Census Bureau. Long to, ago. To a, ver- a very clear delegation, but it had also passed the Administrative Procedure Act. So it wasn't quite like the travel ban case where Congress has this statute from the 1950s that wasn't controversial, all that controversial until Trump enacted the travel ban, that was just like dumping enormous discretion into the president's lap, unbounded discretion. You know, one of the more remarkable statutes you'll ever read as far as just Congress abdicating its authority, this was not that. So Congress gives the executive branch some authority, but it also has the APA. And if this was a very logical opinion, yes, in theory, you have the power to do this. Yes, the APA also applies. The APA is going to require you to put forward justifications, not post hoc rationalizations. So go do your job. And that's essentially the case in a nutshell. Right. And it's in some ways, it's super basic and it shouldn't be a partisan matter. And there are parts of this opinion that Chief Justice Roberts wrote that are actually unanimous, which is heartening. Although then there are other parts that are broken into different kinds of majorities um, that I'm not going to sort out right this second. In the travel ban case, the Trump administration by the time that case got to the Supreme Court, was on the third round 3.0. of the travel ban, <laughs> yes. right? This is was always like travel ban 1.0. And so I think what we're seeing here, and again, I find this really heartening, even though it should have been obvious all along, I think, was that if you're in the land of chaos of 1.0, of making up totally implausible explanations for something you've done because you don't want to give the real rationale, then that's not permissible. And that is like a basic rule of law standard that got affirmed today. Wasn't there, there was some commentary um, when everybody was waiting for this decision that said, well, the Supreme Court 
can't handle new facts that have come in subsequent to its hearings and oral arguments. Does this change one's opinions about that? They didn't address the right. new. So you're talking about this 11th hour discovery, right. super dramatic, where yeah, yeah. Um, Thomas Hofeller, a Republican right. strategist, died. His daughter had his hard drives discovered on them. These documents had suggested that, well, that showed that in 2015, Hofeller did a study um, about how to use citizenship data to change how states draw redraw district lines and electoral maps for state and local elections, right? So the federal constitution says you have to use one person, one vote as the standard for drawing the maps for Congress. But there's no rule like that for state and local elections. And so what Hofeller showed was what we know, if you change the basis of apportionment to citizens, then you benefit white rural voters who tend to vote Republican. And he said that explicitly in this study. And then there were these quite... uh, there were real links between him and this decision that Wilbur Ross made as Commerce Secretary. Uh, and so and that... The, and the Commerce Department d- denied those links. The Commerce Department basically denied those links and their questions about whether this other Trump official, Mark Newman, lied in his deposition, which he described the influence that Hofeller had had on him as being the opposite of what Hofeller's study actually concluded. All of that is being litigated right now in the Fourth Circuit in Maryland. And so the big bombshell this week was that the Court of Appeals, the Fourth Circuit, told the district court judge, like, go ahead, take some evidence about all that. Like, we got to get to the bottom of that. As far as I can tell in this opinion, the Supreme Court didn't address that whole controversy. And yet, by remanding this case, it effectively will allow the Maryland case to proceed, which is very much not what the Trump administration wanted. I mean, this is a a loss for the Trump administration. Big loss. Big loss. Because... What, as a practical matter, even if they, just at the speed at which bureaucracies move, even if they really step on the gas to try to go through a process here, the, the clock is just going to run out. Although Because the they've got to get the census going. they got to get the they census going. they got to get the forms printed. But the only evidence in the record about that comes from the director of the Census Bureau. And he said that they really have until the end of October. So I don't think we're done with this. Like, I think it could be hard for the government, but I think the government is going to press ahead. It would be you know, really interesting I, to see. I, but see, the problem that they're going to have is they cannot change the past record of this case. You're going to have immediate injunctions issued even if you go through even if you try to rinse it could you start over again like they did with the travel ban just like start over or is it too late oh it's a much more complex than that because i think what because what you're going to have to do with the apa process is you're going to have to run through an agency process of empirical analysis yeah there's you're gonna have, time for all that yeah you're going to have to do a lot of things that I just don't think they have time to do, and you're going to have to do it to the satisfaction. Let's just be honest. There's going to be legal challenge instantaneously in the same jurisdictions that previously enjoined. I don't see them likely to change their mind. It would have to wind its way all the way back up to the Supreme Court again for this to happen. I feel like they could try, but maybe they won't for two reasons. So I'm not sure I'm right about this, but The more that we look under the hood at this governmental decision making, which is what the Supreme Court has opened up, not to mention the Fourth Circuit, the worse the government's past record will look. And then the other problem they have is that all the empirical analysis from the Census Bureau, the career professionals, was that adding the citizenship question would make the census less accurate. It was going to break the census and make the count wrong in a way that was going to undercount 
uh, immigrants and people who are networked into those communities. So that is a hard record to erase, too. And yet, are they really just going to, like, let go of this? I mean, David, so for example, what if they said, okay, our rationale now going forward is that we want to allow states to have this data so they can change the way they redistrict if they want to. Like, would that be constitutionally impermissible? Well, you know, the Supreme Court's already said there is not a per se constitutional bar to this. So Exactly. So there, to that type of redistricting. There are rationalizations for a censorship, the including the citizenship question that the Supreme Court has broadcasted that it would accept. It, it is not saying— Or at least left open, I would Left think. open. Yeah. Um, so, yes, there is—let There is. Let me put it this way. I would say for another administration, <laughs> if it wanted to take a run at it, the door is open. I would say for this administration— Tough. On this record, very, very, very tough. And here, you know, here's how Trump can square the circle. He can tweet out today— Maybe he already has. I'm going full speed ahead on the citizenship question, and then nothing else happens. <laughs> and he can blast the Supreme Court, although the unanimous part of the ruling might be a problem for him. These right. are his appointees who joined in rejecting I, what the government was doing here. I'm, I'm not sure that the uh, a linear and rational uh, chain of argumentation has been an impediment to the president you know, in some of his previous now? statements. Yeah, I'm sure you're right about that. All right. Well, this is so interesting. I'm really eager to revisit it. But let's um, end that topic there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. David, you have been, or at least like some persona created around you, <laughs> has been the subject of much debate um, among conservatives in the last month or so. A writer, a New York Post uh, op-ed page editor named Sora Bamari wrote an essay railing against David Frenchism. Um, he said he thought of this as more of a persuasion or a sensibility than a movement and says that this sensibility is bound up with sort of your, uh, bound up with you, I suppose. And then he says that it's it, it's hard to critique the persona of someone who is as nice as you are. <laughs> then again, it is in part, I'm quoting, that earnest and insistently polite quality of yours that um, Amari finds unsuitable to the depth of the present crisis facing religious conservatives. And then he makes this statement, which I'm still puzzling over, which is that his view is that conservatives should give up defending a neutral public square and instead impose our order and our orthodoxy. So I want to talk about what it felt like for you to be on the receiving end of this. <laughs> You've written some, I think, like, to me, quite persuasive and eloquent responses to this, but also, like, what does this mean, impose our order and our orthodoxy? Yeah, I, can I just, before David yes. defends yeah. I two things that... Um, it seems like what that's also linked to is basically is saying it, it feels like one of the there's been a variety of piece, pieces written like this that try to embrace and find a way to accommodate Donald Trump, which is to say his means and 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 behaving as he does in the public square is OK because the threat from the secular anti-religious is so grave, which is which connects. So it seems to me it's connecting Trump with 
a negative partisanship, which we've talked about before, which is that your behaviors and standards of your behaviors in the public square are determined not by immutable standards that we were all we all learned in kindergarten, but that can change because the threat on the other side is so grave. So what happens is now that we're all in this world of, of, and we've talked about earlier, when we're in a world where we sort and we don't hang out with other people, we inflate their evilness, and that then becomes the pretext for us being allowed to do anything. I don't know if you agree with any of that, David, but that's what no, I think I that to. that's you're you're hitting the nail on the head uh, on a lot that explains a lot of this. I would call this deep Christian Trumpism. Okay, so there's a shallow Christian Trumpism and there's a deep Christian Trumpism. The shallow Christian Trumpism is he's a bad guy. He does bad things. Devil's bargain. I don't like him, but judges. Okay. (laughs) That's good. I like that. Yeah. So that's shallow Christian Trumpism. That's purely transactional. Deep Christian Trumpism is this is the man for the time. His authoritarian and illiberal tendencies are not a bug, but a feature. And so- And we need them. And we need them. So- it, his, his th- he has three main points, one of which I disagree very strongly with all three of them. <laughs> one, politics is war and enmity, especially at this time in our nation's life. Number two, that in that circumstance, civility and decency are second-order values. And number three, that classical liberalism itself is the source of our cultural malady and political malady, that the very system of the founders has inherent defects that lead a culture into ruin. So is that effectively a rejection of democracy? Because when people talk about imposing our order and our orthodoxy, that's what I hear. Well, it's hard to put your hands on it because they don't then say, this is concretely what it means, other than they're really inflamed by the existence of a drag queen reading hour in Sacramento Public Library. Yeah, which we need to get into that. But right, I mean, I find the unspelled out nature of the alternative to be... Like it, it allows me to go full on Handmaid's Tale when I start thinking about this, and maybe that's not the I, intent at all. No, I but would it's call not it, clear. You, well, so number one, I think it is, it is illiberal, it is more authoritarian, um, it is not immediate, it is not um, in- implementation of a Catholic dictatorship. You know, there would still be pre- that. That's part of the part of this that's so puzzling to me is if the culture is lost. How are you planning on winning elections in perpetuity and ruling, you know, ruling with a specific theological bent where the provisions of the Constitution that are contrary to that are swept away, which essentially seems to be the argument. And and I will tell you, there is one piece of legislation proposed that is sort of like the beginning stages of this, the Hawley bill on social media. Okay. So Josh Hawley is sort of positioning. Partnering with Elizabeth Warren, at least conceptually, if not on this particular not bill. Not on, on this this issue. I don't think Warren would be on board. But okay. So essentially what the Hawley bill is, is he's saying. This is Josh Hawley, the senator from Missouri. Exactly. Who's sort of positioning himself as the avatar of Trump, post-Trump Trumpism. Totally. And what the Hawley bill says is essentially if you're a social media company, a private entity above a certain size, you're going to have to prove to the satisfaction of, a, of the FTC that you're politically neutral. And which is unconstitutional, it's overbroad, it's vague, and it is contrary to the traditional conservatism that I grew up in, which says, look, we don't want government commissions deciding free speech questions. Deciding who is politically neutral, like what does that mean? Exactly. But the Amariist view is finally, (laughs) finally, because these people are corrosive to the public good, they're corrosive 
to the influence of cult, of Christians in the culture, they need to be put in their place. And what's interesting is that you're right, Holly's solution is different from Warren's. Warren's is to talk about breaking up what she sees as monopolistic behavior. Which is a different issue. Which is different and Mm -hmm. falls under a much more traditional, or at least it tries to revive an understanding of antitrust law, which we've lost, but could come back. Whereas Holly is talking about something that has all kinds of problems under the First Amendment for the reasons that you just laid out. So, okay, here's another part of this. So I do understand why religious social conservatives would feel embattled right now and feel like they're kind of losing this cultural war that Amari has set up. Like, that makes sense to me. And a lot of your litigation for the Alliance Defending Freedom when you were a lawyer there was defending, you know, a Christian professor who felt discriminated against by a university. Like, those are such classic civil libertarian defenses of religious liberties and religious um, minorities, not quite the right word, but yeah, like minority. In that community. In that community, Mm -hmm. totally. And I think a lot of liberals are on board for all of that, basically, right? I mean, they want it to not only be for Christians, they want also Muslims, etc., to be protected, as I think you would agree. But that is pretty easy to find common ground on in our classic liberal conception of democracy. What I find much more confusing is the drag queen story hour is the catalyst for this because the drag queen story hour isn't about like someone not being able to express their own religious views. It's about being so threatened by uh, what's seen as like a transgressive expression of sexuality in a public space that it can't be allowed to happen. And that's like a very different move, isn't it? Yes, yes. So and and let's back up just a bit before we get to that. One is I have come to the conclusion that One of the things that's particularly toxic about our public discourse right now is in many key ways, both sides think they're losing. Sure. So So true. If both sides think they're losing, there's an incredible amount of urgency. And so what ends up happening is you take your wins for granted as the natural order of things, and you view the losses with an outsized sense. Your wounds are very precious to you. And I used to, and I will freely admit, I was more in that camp uh, than I than I like to admit, because as a lawyer, I was always going to where the problem was. And so I was seeing the problem. Well, in order to do your work, you had to sort of have a certain sense of outrage on behalf right. of your clients, probably. Right. And so you're dwelling in that land. But then I started to back up and, and, I, and I, I like the way my colleague Ramesh Panuru has phrased sort of the last 40 years of American cultural development. America has become more pro- gay, more pro-life, and more pro-gun. It's, and you, if you look at the laws on the books, you know, they reflect that uh, nationally. And I found it very odd that Amari was sounding this incredible gloom and doom using Drag Queen Reading Hours Exhibit A right at the same time that basically every state in the South was passing unprecedented pro-life legislation, often by legislative supermajorities. And to me, it was a paradigmatic example of how we catastrophize our losses and take for granted our victories. And also, and I didn't realize it, I didn't think of it in this context. I was thinking of, I see this all the time because in the press, of course, um, 
and this I don't mean this to be a press critique, but I guess that's where it's going to go there, particularly because <laughs> I've spent so, a lot of time covering conservatives and the conservative movement. You would see a lot of stories where they would take the the craziest Republican member of some state legislature offering some zany, wacky bill and and there would be huge front page stories about right. it, and so it was. And you, you mean know, that the that liberal the journalists liberal were journalists kind of lifting that up and giving it outsized attention. Yes, yeah. and therefore they were saying, "Mike, look at how crazy these people are." I don't know why I tweeted this, but at uh, some point I said there has to be a psychological term for taking the craziest member of the ideological tribe against which you're arguing and then defining the whole tribe by that. And I was introduced to a term called nut picking by none other than Nancy French, married to David French. And <laughs> But I think that's what the Sacramento Library essentially also is, which yes. is nut picking, which is saying the thing that I find most disturbing represents the entire... Uh, full range of the other side. Yeah, but the thing I, I that all makes sense. The thing I still don't get about the story hour is like how it isn't. It's not about your liberty to express your religion. It's about feeling like the public square is being invaded by people expressing their sexuality in a way that's threatening. Like those are two really different things. And I, this is where I have trouble embracing this vision because I just feel like you're tromping all over the rights and sensibilities of like a very threatened minority in the United States. It's like just barely being able to be visible and express itself. Yeah. So, so I think he would say, look, drag queen reading hour, because it even exists, is a sign that our, our uh, culture has fallen to an immense degree. Like in 1880, you would not have a drag queen reading Yeah, but hour. like, why is that true? And why are most, if most Americans in this moment, as you're saying, where people are become, coming much more open to different expressions of sexuality, like that just seems like a losing move. And also like a, it's... Well, and here, that's your response. As a moment, as a like uh, to have a as a matter of conscience of morality, because you're impinging on other people's humanity. Well, I can imagine that if your faith, if the faith of the author who thinks this is if is uh, confronted by this, it's not just another person. They think they think it's a. So sin, you don't so. go to the story hour. I mean, isn't this the exact fight that we had over same-sex marriage and marriage equality well, there, a few years ago? Here, so here's what I think. Here's where I think that you're going to see the really stark difference between me and Sorab. Okay, and this this is this is getting right down to brass tacks. I would have the view. So he's a Catholic Christian. I'm a Protestant Christian. We have very similar views on uh, sexual morality and what's you know what's right and wrong for individuals to choose to do. Okay, we are, we're very similar on that. However, what we're very different on, as it seems, is our approach towards the civil liberties of the people with whom we disagree. Right. Like, wouldn't you be willing to go in and defend the drag queen's right to have story hours? I have defended I... people so far opposite of me on the political spectrum from unconstitutional attacks like that it would be hard for us to be in the same room we disagree so much. But by golly, they have the exact same civil liberties that I have. I mean, this and, is where you overlap with the ACLU, right? right? This notion that you defend the most reprehensible speech or conduct because that is what you do in order to make sure everybody is free to speak and practice. It, their to religion. me, it's it's also it's a Christian ethical principle as well. I call it, it's like a um, the legal corollary to the golden rule. I like to defend the rights of others that I would like to exercise myself. Yeah. Can I also one other thing that just doesn't make any sense to me to the extent that this is um, the deep Christian Trump. Uh, which I think makes really good sense, and I, I like that way of thinking about it. 
So the problem with the conflict between the culture and your beliefs, if you're a Christian or whatever religion you are, is that you worry that accommodations are made for the secular culture that are at odds with the eternal verities mm -hmm. and that living life and having a public life that is in concert with those, uh, those eternal verities is a better way to live. Okay. If there is a force in American life that isn't doing more to those eternal verities in the public square than Donald Trump, I'm, it? <laughs> it's hard to find one. Yeah. And I think a perfect example of this recently was Russell Moore uh, from the Southern Baptist Convention yes. said that he the conscience was shocked by the treatment of the, the migrants or the pictures and what he was seeing and learning. Not hard to find places in the gospel where um, Jesus talks about the way that, that you treat the least among us. And so I assume that's, you know, you can draw a line presumably from what Dr. Moore was saying. So then Jerry Falwell Jr. is a strong supporter of the president, wrote a tweet in response to it saying basically, who are you? Uh, have you, you've never met a payroll, you've full never started contempt. anything full of like searing contempt and basically saying you're just a bureaucrat. And it felt like, look, Twitter is toxic, Twitter's awful, I almost don't want to talk about and this. And yeah, these are religious figures. But this was essentially, it felt like a stark example of what I'm trying to come to here, which is the, the essentially the accommodations made for Donald Trump that are at odd, odds with eternal verities which is supposedly what the people who are suggesting using kind of Trump-like tactics for the protection of eternal verities would want. And I find that a very strong tension. Well, it's fundamentally inconsistent with biblical commands. These are commands. You do it and you have faith. You have faith as a Christian that in pursuing and following Christ's commands – that he's in control, okay? That you don't, it doesn't all rest on your efforts. And so what's happening here though is we're seeing Christians treat kindness as weakness. And kindness is strength. You know, it, it takes strength to love someone in the face of hate. It takes, I mean, and Adam Serwer in The Atlantic had this incredible paragraph in one of his responses to this where he was like, he essentially stepped back and said, and Adam and I disagree on a ton of stuff, For but, sure. but this was powerful as powerful. He stepped back and he said, what are you talking about? You know, Japanese Americans were interned in World War II and many of them enlisted to fight anyway. They did not give up an American uh, pluralistic democracy and the rule of law and liberal democracy. African Americans from 1619 to 1964 were in a position of formal, I mean, abject servitude for most of that time. And, and then legalized discrimination. And then legalized discrimination. And yet, Fred, if you read Frederick Douglass to Martin Luther King, they're calling on America to exchange cash in it. They're cashing in that promissory note that was established in the founding and in the Constitution. These are people who've suffered so much more than the deprivation that I that I have defended Christians from in court, and yet didn't, not only didn't give up on classical liberalism, they used classical liberalism to obtain justice. And and I will believe, you know, I I, I believe there are there are, there is illiberalism on the left, there is illiberalism on the right, and I have been in court, and I've and to your point earlier about there is. A lot of agreement, more than people realize, across the spectrum about civil liberties. I've won cases in front of Carter, Clinton, Reagan, 
Not Reagan, that's too old. Carter Clinton. <laughs> no, he went back to Carter. No, one guy, Carter, <laughs> one guy. Obama, you know, free speech cases from justice judges appointed by every president in the modern era because in the free speech jurisprudence in this country right now and is in a stronger position than it's ever been, arguably. I mean, most free speech cases are decided 7-2 now or sometimes 9-0. Right. It's, it's pretty robust. That's, yeah. That's, yeah. So to say, to look at this culture and say it's beyond hope. And I think another thing where we disagree is I think with Amari, I believe there's going to be permanent deep divisions and worldview in this country. It's not going to become an entirely secular country. It's not going to become an entirely religious country. Secular and and religious are going to live side by side. And we got to figure out how to gotta deal with the divide. And liberalism, small L liberalism, provides us with the tools to do that. It provides us with the tools to adjudicate disagreements so we don't do it with force of arms. I mean, that's... Bingo. That's... Well, that was my fear about imposing order. I, I feel like we could talk about this forever, but let's um, end that topic there. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say... Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Let's move on to cocktail chatter. John, when you're having a drink tonight in some on some nice... Port. I don't know where you're going to be. I don't know. I'm not oh, you're not even going to get tonight. to have a drink. No, you no, have no, to no, no. I got to talk I gotta about work. the debate. Oh well. Okay. No, no, I got to work. Um, so this is a, this is a, a cocktail chatter introduced to me by my um, wife. So Florence Nightingale, the lady with the lamp, the patron saint of nurses and and ministering to uh, the sick. Um, that's the way I'd always thought of her. But I have just learned, and now when I went and researched this, found it's in Atlas Obscura, like all interesting things that I'm just learning about. There's always a piece in Atlas Obscura. But essentially, that Florence Nightingale was, in addition to all those other things, turns out to have been um, obsessed with numbers and data. Obsessed in part because she said that statistics were basically God's language. And so she was, and that you could see God's purpose through the study of numbers and and, and Analysis. So she was a big data nurse. Um, but the way she used this most effectively was um, in creating the first graphics to look at soldiers in the Crimean War and how they were dying. And huh. what she determined was through using something called the Coxcomb graphic and, cre and, and producing an 850-page report which had these graphics and these graphical representations which were quite cutting edge at the time. And, and some people argue she was the first to use graphical representations to make a persuasive argument that basically determined that what was happening was the soldiers were dying not of their wounds but of the diseases in the hospital. Mm. And that it led then to better sanitary conditions, uh, which, you know, improved a lot for these poor uh, men who she felt haunted by, the ones who had died and had to be buried in Turkey. Anyway, and so she wrote this 850-page book uh, uh, work, and then 
the, the you can find online and we'll post the link to her original graphic um, and they're just beautiful almost works of art but they obviously had this important other benefit uh, though I suppose somebody could argue that if you make uh, war more efficient and fewer people die perhaps it encourages more war but let's not go down that that <laughs> that uh, that road anyway so that's what I learned about Florence Nightingale excellent David maybe you'll get to have a drink tonight or maybe not in any case what would you like to chat about <laughs> Um, I am going to talk about the greatest sports league in the history of the universe, the NBA, because we're in the middle of what, uh, which is one of about five NBA seasons. So you have the regular season. It's endless. All I have to say is it goes on, oh, and on it's, forever. It's glorious. So you have, the, <laughs> you have the regular season, you have the playoffs, then you have wild speculation about the draft, then you have the draft, then you have wild speculation about free agency, then you have free agency. Then you have Summer League, and you have wild overreactions to Summer League, and then you start the regular season again. It's just like this (laughs) wonderful cycle of drama and chatter, and it's one of the few areas of life where social media is, like, actually good. If you are on NBA Twitter, NBA Twitter is a thing. You You are are psyched. Life is good. Life is good. It's full of rumors and and beefs and highlights and more rumors and more highlights and it's just a ton of fun so i'm sort of the because nba basketball's it's uh, much more of an urban sport much more of a blue state audience like blue america audience uh watches nba i am america's conservative ambassador i'm the nba's conservative ambassador to red america about the glories of this sport Awesome. My chatter is about an interview that Megan Tui did on The Daily this today, Thursday, with E. Jean Carroll, who has brought these very serious sexual assault allegations against Donald Trump from 20 years ago. Megan also interviewed the two women who corroborated E. Jean Carroll's account because Carroll had talked to them about what had happened back when it did. So the whole episode is, for me, was riveting and is totally worth listening to. But there was this one moment where Carol was talking that hit me so hard. She, Megan was saying to her, you know, there might be skepticism that you're telling the story right now to sell books. And like, what impact did you think you were going to have? And Carol said, I had no expectation about Mm -hmm. having any impact at all. I am a 76 year old woman. I've seen so many people. She didn't say this part. This is me reading into her effectively. Like so many women try to come forward and just get chewed up and spit back out again. There's just some like deep honest and bleak and just like tough uh, reality in that moment on tape that I will be thinking about for a long time. All right. Our listener chatter on a more up note comes from Abby KL on Twitter. She's recommending the podcast miniseries called This Land. It's about this upcoming, or maybe it came out this morning, Supreme Court decision that is all about the future of Native American tribes in um In Oklahoma, this is a a case about a legal dispute over a very large um, tract of land in Oklahoma and the Native American tribes claim to it. So Abby KL recommends that podcast miniseries, This Land. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap, but this week she is moving to Chicago. So um, her duties were filled by the wonderful Claire St. Amour. Thank you, Claire. Our producer, as always, is Jocelyn Frank. Thank you to Jamie and Great Divide Studios for letting us tape an Aspen. Gabriel Roth and June Thomas are the people who make everything happen for Slate Podcasts. For John Dickerson and David French, I'm Emily Bazlan. We will be back with you next week. Yeah.
Hey, Slate Plus. We want to talk about one more Supreme Court case today. Ooh, David, we skipped all the big ad ad law decisions. That's Ugh. okay. We're just going to let them go. Well, that would really make my nerd flag fly, talking <laughs> about ad law. Let's talk about the 40-foot cross because it's just a little easier. Uh, so this is a case in which the American Humanist Association challenged a 100-year-old 40-foot cross that looms over um, a highway, I believe, in Bladensburg, Maryland. It was erected in 1918 as a memorial to World War I It has some pretty secular writing on it. It has the names of lots of soldiers in the area who died. It was there for almost 100 years before anyone challenged its presence, but then the Humanist Association came forward and said, this is a violation of the Establishment Clause. This is an endorsement, effectively, of religion by the state because it's on public property. The Supreme Court ruled 7-2 to that this cross can stay. And most of the majority opinion is really about this idea of, like, grandfathering in a monument from 100 years ago. What did you think about this opinion? I imagine you supported the outcome, but I wonder what you think about the reasoning. You know, yes, I did support the outcome. I thought the outcome was correct. And the reasoning was typical Establishment Clause reasoning over the last 25 years of Establishment Clause jurisprudence, which is a kind of a giant mess. So... GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 